0: Welcome to the Lincoln Road Chapel podcast. We're a church here in Waterloo that exists to become a thriving community of Christ followers. Our mission is to love God, make disciples, and serve our neighborhood, city, and the world. We meet every Sunday morning at 10 a.m. and we'd love to have you join us in person or online. For more information about Sunday morning worship, our ministries, or how to connect in community, visit our website at lrc.church. Uh, it is it is so good to be with you all here this morning. Um, after a rough start. Uh, (laughs) It is good to be with you this morning. Um, I have the pleasure of leading our youth and young adult programs here at Lincoln Road Chapel. And uh, part of those programs, actually, is that I teach anywhere from three to four times a week uh, with those programs, which is not as crazy as it sounds. Um, But I haven't taught in a month and a half now. And I have got to enjoy, actually, just sitting in this text for several weeks, actually, in preparation for this, which I don't normally get to do with uh, my youth schedule, so uh, we are in Psalm chapter 5 this morning, and uh, to start out, uh, let's just, let me just read this psalm to you all this morning. Psalm chapter 5, beginning of verse 1. Listen to my words, Lord, and consider my lament. Hear my cry for help, my King and my God, for to you I pray. In the morning, Lord, you hear my voice. In the morning, I lay my requests before you and wait expectantly. For you are not a God who is pleased with wickedness. But with you, evil people are not welcome. The arrogant cannot stand in your presence. You hate all who do wrong. You destroy those who tell lies. The bloodthirsty and deceitful you, Lord, detest. But I, by your great love, can come into your house. In reverence I bow down towards your holy temple. Lead me, Lord, in your righteousness. Because of my enemies, make your way straight before me. Not a word from their mouths can be trusted. Their heart is filled with malice their throat is an open grave and their tongues and with their tongues they tell lies declare them guilty O god let their intrigue be their downfall banish them for their many sins for they have rebelled against you but let all who take refuge in you be glad let them ever sing with for joy spread your protection over them that those who love your name may rejoice in you. Surely, Lord, you bless the righteous. You surround them with your favor as with a shield." Where do you go in time of need? Where do you go? Maybe you have a quiet place in your house you're able to retreat to. To think, to contemplate, to maybe let it out. Uh, Maybe you have uh, a friend or a family member who you can confide in, you know that you can just let it all out before them and they'll just listen to you and walk with you in that. Maybe you have a favorite activity to help kind of process your thoughts like going for a walk or a run, going for a drive, one of my favorites actually. Uh, Where do you go when you are in a time of need? Sometimes we all need help, don't we? Whether it is from people around us, whether it is wisdom. Uh, But this morning as we look at Psalm 5, we want to look at just do we understand how close and how near God is to us and that he is our help, our actual tangible help in times of need. We all have need sometime. Uh, a story comes to mind for me of a time that I was really, really in need. It was from a while ago. Uh, maybe it's a crazy story, but um, before I was a youth pastor here at Lincoln Row Chapel, I had the great pleasure of doing probably one of the coolest jobs in the world, which was being a wilderness canoe guide in northern Minnesota, about 150 kilometers southwest of Thunder Bay, if you know where that is. And for two summers, uh, that's me up there, I took groups of junior high and high school students into the thick of the wilderness of northern Minnesota on a four or five day canoe trip, uh, which was amazing. I really loved it. Uh, I kind of look back at it now and I'm just like, probably should have maybe been a little more panicked at the situation and the lack of help around me that we were, we were a two day canoe ride at any point from any sort of help. So it was quite a place to be in with junior highs. Uh, but I loved it. It was an incredible job. Uh, that's me in the picture up there on the back of the canoe there. Oh, sorry, can you go back one slide there, uh, yeah, there we are, um, with the world's largest fanny pack, as you can see, the big red thing, uh, that was actually my medical kit, which was great for medical stuff, it kept in handy, but also, sitting in the canoe in that position there, you could just like kind of lean back a little bit, and it would support you, it was like a bit of a recliner while you were canoeing around the wilderness, it was great, I loved it, uh, but it was quite an adventure, taking groups uh, into the wilderness for a week at a time. And one um, group that I took was at the beginning of the summer. Uh, it was from an organization called Project Success, Project Success which is a Minneapolis-based uh, mentorship organization that mentor youth uh, in high-risk neighborhoods from junior high all the way through the end of high school. Really, really cool organization. And at the beginning of every summer, they bring their grade six and grade seven students up for a canoe trip in the wilderness, uh, 11 and 12-year-olds and um, it's interesting that it's always at the beginning of the summer because That is the beginning of June, and at that point, the ice has actually only left the lake a few weeks before it, so it's still pretty cold. Uh, It's still pretty stormy out. Uh, It's kind of a great mixture of young kids from the city and some of the craziest that the wilderness has to offer. Uh, And that's what I stepped into uh, at the beginning of each summer. And my second summer with them, I actually took this group out. And really good group, had a lot of fun with them, really great co-leader that came with the group. And... uh, First day in the wilderness, it was great. It was sunny. We enjoyed ourselves. Second day, weather kind of took a turn. It started to rain. It got pretty cold, actually. Uh, Third day, I remember just, like, canoeing into the wind. Like, it was just coming at you, and you were just battling it the whole time. It was exhausting. I remember getting to the campsite, and everything was just soaked. Like, you just can't keep stuff dry out there. And I remember it was a miracle, we somehow got a fire going, I couldn't believe it because everything was soaked. Uh, But the next day, off day four, we were meant to canoe to our final campsite, get there early, go to a rock climbing area in the park uh, that we could take the kids um, rock climbing, which was awesome, and then come back, spend the night and go home. Uh, We started out that day canoeing, and the weather just took a turn. And I mean a serious, serious turn. We were canoeing across the lake, things were fine, a little bit breezy, nothing out of the usual. And then I kid you not, it just what it seemed like is the wind just started coming straight down on us. I remember the waves, they were literally three to four feet tall at different points, and they were just kind of going up and down. They weren't going any particular direction as if the wind was blowing them some way. They were literally just going up and down. Uh, you were in this crazy a lake that would look like it was exploding. And here we are, three canoes in the mess of this weather, and we literally got blown apart. Uh, I ended up with my canoe uh, at one end, and the other two canoes ended up at the other end of a decently small lake. But uh, I had to then figure out with this group how am I going to get them back to the rest of the group? We had to slowly work our way around the shoreline. Uh, We just couldn't cross the lake. Uh, It took a while, but we eventually met up with a group, ate some food real quick, and then we had to battle ourselves through the storm uh, to get to a place to spend the night. Uh, And it was hard. Again, these are young kids, never been in the wilderness before. Their idea of the wilderness is like maybe the forest behind the the park in the city of Minneapolis. Uh, Canoeing with them through this storm to get to a safe place. Uh, We remember we were just fighting through this, Half my job was kind of actually getting the canoe, moving through the water to get to a safe place. The other half was keeping the kids going, like, guys, you got this. I know this is hard. Keep, like, putting on that, like, strong, solid face that they can look at and take some confidence and then keep pushing themselves because it was scary. It was legitimately scary. And we pushed through, and we finally got to this campground, uh, which wasn't that far away, but, again, just took us forever to battle the elements to get to. And when we got there, we set up camp got everyone kind of calmed down, got some food on the stove to feed them. And I looked at my co-leader, and I was like, I just need 10 minutes. She's like, that's fine. Take it. Done enough. Take it. And I remember going into my tent, which wasn't very tall, so I literally laid down because you can't stand up in a tent. And I just kind of looked up at God, and I was like, God, I need you right now. I don't know what I'm supposed to do. I got my training, but this is crazy weather. God, what if this doesn't let up? God, what if we're stuck here for multiple days? You're in the wilderness. You don't know the weather report. You have no idea what's coming next. God, I need you right now. I need you that these kids are going to make it back safe and sound. So I took that 10 minutes, poured it out before God, and then I went back outside into the rain and the weather with the kids, and we spent the rest of the day. I I can't remember what we did now, but that was kind of that. Um, Spent the night there, which meant that we didn't make it to rock climbing, which meant we didn't meet a rendezvous, so that would have tipped off the camp, actually, that we were not doing well. Uh, Next morning, the weather had come down a bit and made the calls, like, okay, I think we're going to push for this. We're going to push it because I think we'll be able to do this. We can handle this. Still wasn't great weather, but it was better than staying in a campground and not knowing what's coming. So we took the opportunity and went and canoed, pushed our way back to camp. We finally got back to camp. Uh, just actually as they were sending out a search party for us. I saw them coming out of the docks and waved to them, and they looked pretty relieved, and we made it back. I don't have any crazy story of God all of a sudden like stopping the waters or making it all better or a boat showing up. And you're like, oh, hop in. Uh, but we made it back safe. And I know God watched over us. And I'm thankful for that. It's easy, isn't it, maybe? I don't say that story to, to be like, look at how amazing of a pastor I am. Uh, but it's easy in those hard points and the hard moments to pursue God, isn't it? It's a little bit harder in our daily lives when you're driving down the road and someone cuts you off to, to sit back and be, Lord, Lord, I need you right now to help <laughs> control <laughs> the outburst that's about to come out of me. Uh, it's harder in those moments, isn't it? Easy when things are in a disaster area, much harder when it's just everyday hardship. Do we recognize that we can pursue God in moments such as that? We need to learn to live in pursuit of the reality that our God is our help in the simplest of moments in our day. Looking at Psalm five this morning, I'm going to be looking at and kind of break it up into three different sections here uh, as we pursue God through the storm. And in the first section here is to center and recenter. Uh, as we look at the Psalm here, we can see what uh, David, who is the author of, Sound, uh, off, author of the Psalm, does. Uh, he starts by centering or recentering himself, either with new information, new wisdom from the Lord, or with truths he's known forever. Center and re-center. Verse one and verse two. Listen to my words, Lord. Consider my lament. Hear my cry for help, my King and my God, for to you I pray. As we look at this, as we look at how how David approached God, um, to get a picture of just what he did to approach God, um, right off the bat we notice that David is just doing just that. He's approaching God. He approaches God and he calls God my king and my God. Well, David was king, right? David was king of the nation of Israel. David was considered one of the greatest, if not the greatest king in all of Israel's history. And yet he recognizes, no God, you are my king. I don't just get to go about and do what I want as a king here, no God, you are my king. He recognized his position as, as God being his king recognize that God was his God. Back in that day, kings of nations were often looked at as deities, as gods or demigods. Uh, David has no thought in his mind that he is anything like this. He is just a king under God's authority, that God is God. And And he pursues God knowing this reality, knowing this structure, that God is king, that he is God, and he is the one that can help David. David uh, approaches God alone. There's no one else on the line here. There's no, it's not like, hey, God, can you help me with this? And then like off to the side, like, hey, other person, can you help me with this? No, just God. My king and my God, for to you, I pray. David understood that God was his help, the source of his help. We ourselves, we may not be seeking out other gods or spiritual authorities in our own day, in our own lives. We maybe don't have that same mix-up that people in David's day did. Uh, But how often do we seek our own help in situations? How often do we seek help in places forgetting to seek God first? It's not that help in other places or help from ourselves is necessarily wrong, but are we seeking God first? Are we putting that front and center? Do we think of ourselves as the primary power in our lives, the one who can accomplish all things for ourselves? Or do we recognize just who our king is and who our God is, and that it is to him alone that we seek? Now, what does this mean? Does this mean that when you're sitting in a, as parents in the room, and you're sitting in a pile of laundry all around you, and just look to the Lord like, Lord God, help me in this. Help with the laundry get done. Uh, does it look like that? Uh, maybe. I don't know. I'm not a parent. I've never sat in the mountain of laundry. I have been around my friends and looked at them as they folded laundry, and I'm like, you have three kids, and there's eight baskets of laundry. Like, How did you get here? The math doesn't add up. Uh, God's, uh, I hate to break it to you, God's probably not going to do your laundry for you, but in those moments, in those hard times, do we emotionally seek God and say, God, I'm stressed. Parents, stressed? Yes. God, I'm stressed. Would you help me here? Would you meet me here in this moment? To recognize that God is in every moment of our day and God is and should be pursuable in every moment of our day. David uh, continues in verse three. In the morning, Lord, you hear my voice. In the morning, I lay my requests before you and wait expectantly. There's a bit of an unfurl here from David that he's not, one, he's pursuing God in the morning, great observation, but two, that this is actually a regular thing. In the morning, he's speaking to a routine that he has with God. It isn't just him seeking God in a desperate moment, like I talked about with my canoeing story, but he actually pursues God every morning, He's referencing a rhythm that he has with God. Whether he wakes up excited to greet the day, excited for a coming, or he wakes up dreading the day and what's coming, David pursues God regularly. He is in conversation with God regularly. It doesn't matter what's going on with his day coming forward. He starts with God in the morning. He also says here that he waits expectantly uh, we might like that expectant word, right? Uh, that God is going to step in and do something great. Do we like that waiting word, though? I wait expectantly. That's a harder one, isn't it? This is a word that we do see all over Scripture, though, uh, that God calls his people to wait on him. It's, it's an interesting concept, right? You're like, God, you could step in right now. Uh, but there's something about our development in that, in that waiting. As we wait and trust on God, there's something in us that actually grows in that moment. Isaiah 40 says that strength will rise as we wait upon the Lord. It is in the waiting that God shows up, and it's an important part of pursuing God. Expectantly, if we're, this is for our own reflection, but do we expect God to show up? Again, it's a great word, a great idea that God would show up, but do we actually expect God to show up? God Almighty, you're God Almighty. You can step in in this moment. You are able to do such things. Are we expectant that God will move? Now, God certainly has his own will. There's certainly a lot of factors in that. But when we pursue God, when we wait on him, do we expect that he can and will move as he sees right? Because he does. Expectant waiting Continuing on, verse three again. In the morning, Lord, you hear my voice. In the morning, I lay my request before you and wait expectantly. For you are not a God who is pleased with wickedness. With you, evil people are not welcome. starting transition here, but it's interesting that the word for shows up in there. When I went to Bible college, I remember my professor just kind of like pushing it into us like, pay attention to those transition words. Don't look over them because they connect two important things together. And it's interesting because it feels like two different thoughts, doesn't it? Uh, in, uh, in the morning, I pursue you, God. You are not pleased with the wicked. It feels like two different thoughts, uh, but there's a connecting point here. Uh, this is actually David's own self-reflection, almost confession that as he pursues God regularly, he's not making the mistake that his enemies, those who oppressed him, are more evil than him, that somehow he is righteous before God because of his actions and they are not. He's making a blanket statement here that God before you, for you are not a God who is pleased with wickedness. With you, evil people are not welcome. He's talking about both his enemies and himself here, and he's not making the mistake to assume that he is righteous enough to stand before God. The other thing that is kind of being surfaced in here is that, God, uh, is that David is actually realizing that even at the very least, uh, he's ris- risking wickedness by acting without pursuing God. As he's met with this situation with his enemies, whatever's going on there with that, he's risking wickedness by not pursuing God first, by just jumping in, doing what he thinks is right, responding to the situation in a way he thinks he should. He's aware that he could fault to this by accident, so he steps back. He says, God, you're not a God who's pleased with wickedness. He's entering into a space with God to say, God, I'm looking for your direction here, I'm looking for your wisdom here, that I wouldn't accidentally, by my own faults, try to resolve this, and in so, doing what is evil. David is regularly, every morning, pursuing God, especially in hardship, so that he wouldn't rush in to respond to a situation and accidentally or intentionally do something that is against the Lord. He trusts God and he looks to God who is good. Now as he does this, he seeks God's goodness because he is in a difficult situation with his enemies who are doing evil. And so he pursues God's character, he pursues who God is, that God will respond again out of his character, not because of something David's done, but out of God's character. Verses four through six, let me read these for you. Uh, For you are not a God who is pleased with wickedness. With you, evil people are not welcome. The arrogant cannot stand in your presence. You hate all who do wrong. You destroy those who tell lies. The bloodthirsty and deceitful Lord, you Lord, detest. Again, as he's looking to God, for God to be his help in this situation, in this moment, He's not trying to do things by his own power, by his own wisdom, but he's looking to God that he would step in. And he's not making the mistake that he, for some reason, deserves this from God, but instead is saying, God, you are good. You are opposed to all evil, all of it, regardless of where it comes from. And he looks to God's character to do good in that moment because that is who God is, God isn't this character that kind of sits in the back, looks at what people are, the evil people doing, and he's just like, yeah, that was pretty bad, uh, but you had some flair with it, and I, I kind of like that. No, absolutely not. God in no way has any sort of appreciation for evil, none at all. And David looks for God to do good in this situation, good that he himself cannot do. The arrogant cannot stand in your presence. Uh, this is kind of what the arrogant do, right? That they stand in a lot of places that they should not stand. Uh, it's a definition of arrogance, but before God, they cannot. Again, why? Because God is that good. And again, this is all in David's centering and recentering, reminding himself the bigger truths, not just what's in front of him right now, but the bigger truths, that God is good, that God is attentive to evil. And God in no way appreciates evil, but is fully, fully against it. The arrogant cannot stand in God's presence. God hates all who do wrong. Destroys all who tells lies. David knows God also desires that something would be done in this situation. He isn't just standing back and letting it happen. Now, as David does all this reflection, this time before the Lord, um, maybe you start to ask the question. I'm certainly he is asked the question. Then, who can stand before God? Who is able to stand before the Lord? Because all of us have done evil, right? None of us are without sin. God is just that perfect, and maybe that's the contrast, right? That God is just that perfect, and regardless of how much good maybe we do in our lives, that God is so 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 beyond that. That is the contrast. So who then can stand before God? It's interesting. This is a long time before Jesus. I would forget how many years, uh, but a long time before Jesus that David already knows this principle about God. Verse 7, But I, by your great love, can come into your house. In reverence I bow down towards your holy temple. None of us get to stand before God because none of us have the holiness of God. None of us are good as God is. None of us are able to do good like God can. We've all done things that are against the Lord, that are evil by nature. So how then can we stand before God? Because of his great love, not because of our actions. Those who recognize who God is, who put their trust in him, who are willing to accept where they have done wrong, done sin in their lives, and to seek forgiveness, God makes a way for us by his great love. And long, long before Jesus died on the cross, David knew this about God, and he put his hope and trust in this, not in his own actions, not, hey, I'm leading your nation here, God, you probably should back me up here. But no, because of your great love, God, I get to enter your presence, enter your house, how does David respond to this? He responds with reverence. He doesn't just take it like, that's great, thanks God, you're awesome. No, he responds in reverence. Second half of this verse, it says, in reverence I bow down, recognizing who you are, not taking any pride in my status, but recognizing who you are, Jesus, and what you've done. Says he bows down towards God's holy temple. This is actually pre temple; the temple didn't exist yet. Uh, He might be referring to the tabernacle, the tent where. um, Oh, I just lost the word. Uh, You know, I'm talking the big gold box with the sticks and stuff. Yeah, I totally just lost that ark of the covenant. There it is. where that is located, in the tent. Um, He might be looking towards that. Uh, He might be just like Daniel when Daniel was in exile in Babylon uh, talks about looking towards Jerusalem, a place that didn't exist at that point. Uh, And it's just this image, this picture. God, I look towards where you dwell because I look to you. In reverence, I bow down to where you dwell, Lord, because you are that good and because you've done that good in my life, Lord. By God's love, we get to come before him. Centering and recentering. that we would, as we approach God, remember who he is, remember the deeper, bigger reality in our situation, and not lose sight of that. Second thing, then, that David then does is to seek help, the help of the Lord, our help. He starts in verse 8, not just specifically looking to help against his enemies, but actually with himself, once again. Verse 8, it says, Lead me, Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me. This is a bit of a springboard. He's just come out to talk about it. it's because of God's love that he can enter God's space in the temple. Uh, and it's almost like this picture of just like, that's what I want for myself, God. Your straight ways, your goodness, your right path. I want to live as you live, God, as much as I'm able in this world. Lord, lead me, Lord, in your righteousness that I would live as you live, Lord. He seeks that out. But then it's interesting. He says, lead me, Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me. Because of my enemies. Another transition word there. Do you ever think about just how your enemies, whoever they are, whatever they are, I don't know if we even use that word anymore. Maybe you do. I don't know. Uh, Those who are in opposition of you, things that are in opposition of you, do you ever think about how they influence you? Because it's in a number of different ways. It could be directly, a direct assault, um, where they are doing evil against you, and the prayer then be, God, would you help me in this situation to put an end to what they're doing? But it also can be kind of through a sideways influence, where Just like someone cuts you off when you're driving, as I mentioned earlier, it's not maybe they intentionally, maybe they didn't. Hopefully they didn't. Um, There's no direct interaction there, is there? But because of the situation, all of a sudden you're trying to hold back your own unrighteousness from flying out. Uh, There can be that influence piece to it. Do we think about that? Not just, God, would you lead me in your goodness? God, would you keep me from evil? God, would you... Uh, put an end to the evil coming against me. But God, would you help me as I go through hardship in my life, as I go through opposition in my life, not to respond in a way that is counter to you, God, that I would keep on your straight path. You maybe could picture David like walking on a line here um, where maybe it is direct assaults from his enemies trying to knock him off course. But maybe, maybe, It's also that David doesn't want to get pulled off course, either in response or in temptation. Verse 9, David continues, he says about his enemies, he says, "...not a word from their mouths can be trusted. Their heart is filled with malice, their throat is an open grave, and their tongues, with their tongues, they tell lies." It's interesting here, the word lies that it says in there, uh, if you have a, tr- a Bible open in front of you, you might, hear, depending on the translation, actually it might say, uh, ooh, what's the word, flattery, it might say flattery, that they speak flattery. That word in the Hebrew can be translated either way, either to mean lies or to mean flattery, either to be misled or to be drawn off course. That could be what's happening here. We actually don't get much specifics from David as to what his enemies are doing in this situation. Only that he knows he can't trust their words. He knows he needs God to keep him on the straight and narrow path. He's looking, God, would you center me? Would you ground me first? It is also interesting to know, though, that as David is working against his enemies here, that it's words that are the problem. Not necessarily a direct assault, like maybe we think Old Testament, we picture kind of a battle happening, uh, but it is not that that is what David is referring to. It is words. Words are powerful. And if we look in Scripture, there's a lot of times that God holds us accountable to our words. And as we ourselves ask God, would you center me? Would you keep me on a straight path, a good and right path before you, God? Uh, do we recognize that it has to do with our, a lot with our words? Either in what we are just thinking at any moment in the day or how we're responding to people. God, would you keep me on your straight path because of my enemies? Keep me on a straight path. Finally, in verse 10, David actually gets to the point where he asks God to intervene and to do something against his enemies. After nine verses, he finally gets here. Uh, again, important preparation time. And he says in verse 10, "Declare them guilty God. Let their intrigues be their downfall. Banish them for their many sins, for they have repelled against you." There's a few different things here that are happening. One is that David knows that when someone does something wrong, regardless of who it's at, it's not just against them, but it's also against God. And he says, "God, they're saying against you here too. It's not just me, it's you, God. I know that's true there's also something else that he does here. Again, he's not seeking his own retribution, his own response to what his enemies are doing, but rather seeking God. In Deuteronomy 32, uh, as Moses gives his final talk to the Israelites before he's about to pass away and they are to go into the Promised Land, he goes through a long speech to them, kind of things he wants them to remember as they become a nation, going to the Promised Land, uh, living in that promise, he kind of goes through this final speech of what he wants Israel to remember. And Deuteronomy 32, verse 35, he says to Israel that the judgment is the Lord's. Let God avenge you. Apostle Paul will repeat this in Romans 12, that God is the one who punishes evil. Not ourselves. We are not the judge, but God is. And if we allow ourselves, that is actually a great blessing, to be able to sit back and say, I'm not responsible for the punishment or the retribution in this moment. God, who is beyond my wisdom, who is beyond my goodness, who is close to me, who is attentive to evil, he is the one who will hold everyone accountable for the wrongs they've done, for their sin. And David is trusting in this. He's trusting in this. Moving into our third and final section here, our rest, as David pursues rest in the Lord, I actually want to jump back to the beginning of this passage one last time, verses 1 and 2. Listen to my words, Lord. Consider my lament, or consider my groaning. The word there, for groaning, or lament, is actually a unique word. It's only used twice in all of scripture. Uh, that original Hebrew word is, let's see if I can say this right, hagig. And it means actually, it actually gives a picture of deep reflection. Deep, deep reflection, of deep, deep processing of what is going on. And then gives the sound of a whisper. Picture of deep reflection and this, the sound of a whisper. Have you ever been so, so done with something? So, so at the end of your rope that you literally just can't even talk anymore. All that's left is a whisper. That is the picture of where David is at. It's not just that he knows his position before God, that God is king, that he is God. Not that he knows that God is his help, But that David actually trusts God to hear him out. That David could express his heart to God. He could pour out where he's at before God. And trust that to God. Listen to my words, Lord. Consider my lament, my groanings. Listen to my cry for help. For I pray to you, And to no one else. Do we trust God not only as our help, but do we trust God with our heart to give us space to be genuine with the Lord? Not that we lose sight of who he is and respect for him, which certainly David has not done this in this passage, but he also feels totally free to just be honest with God where he's at and what's going on. You see this all over the Psalms, all over the place, where David and the other Psalm writers feel totally free to just say whatever it is they need to say, what's going on in their lives plainly before God, to express their heart, knowing that God is listening, and that God is attentive to their need. And so, can I ask you this morning, what are you tired of, or tired from? What is going on in your life that you just can't bear anymore, can't hold anymore? Tried as you might, you haven't been able to find the resolution for it. It hasn't stopped. What are you tired from this morning? In Matthew, Chapter, oops, sorry, I'm going to get the slide for that. I didn't put it in my notes. There's no slide. I have messed up. Oh, no. What have I done? One second here. In Matthew chapter 18, verses 28 and 29, Jesus says this. He says, come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn... Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humbled in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. This is what Jesus repeats to us, that he is our rest. Not only is he our help, but he is our rest. Would we trust God with this, that God would be our rest, that he would hold us when we need him? Find the last two verses here in Psalm 5. David says, But let all who take refuge in you be glad. Let them sing for joy. Spread your protection over them, that those who love your name may rejoice in you. Surely, Lord, you bless the righteous, and you surround them with your favor as with a shield. God is our help, and God is our rest. Would we also trust God to be our prosperity? be our joy. God has given us many good gifts in this life, things that we can take joy in, things that we can be thankful for. But also God desires to be close to his people, to be with us, to be close to us and to be our very joy and our very peace in our lives. This is who our God is and David knew that he could trust this. He actually spends very little time in this psalm actually seeking God to do something against his enemies, but spends so, so, so much time in this psalm pursuing that God would center him in God, that he wouldn't lose sight of how real God is, how good he is, and the gifts that God has for him already. As you go about your week this week, think about how do we create reactions in our lives where in a situation where things go south, go wrong, that we right away seek God, his wisdom, his peace, his guidance. How do we change our natural reactions towards retribution, whatever it is, and instead to pursue God in that moment, that he would be our foundation? As David said in verse 3 that he seeks God in the morning, Would we create a regular rhythm with God, knowing that it's in that rhythm that we find God, that when hardship comes, we will already be in a place with God, not having to seek Him all of a sudden. Regular rhythm. And then to trust God, that He is there, that He is attentive to us, that He's not distant, that He's not blind, but that He knows exactly where we are at and where our heart is at, and that we can trust Him with those things. Let me pray for you guys. Lord God, we thank you that you are so near to us, that you've not forgotten us. And God, we thank you just as David knew and lived that you are just as near and close to us as well. God, would you help us to keep these things front and center in our minds, that we wouldn't forget them. Thank you, Lord. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening today. If you have any questions or thoughts on this teaching, feel free to reach out because we love to connect. For more information about our church and all the things happening in the LRC community, you can visit our website at lrc.church. See you next time.